If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. If you take a trip to the Great Norman Cathedral in Winchester, you might spot some painted wooden caskets sitting high on the stone screen walls either side of the high altar. These mortuary chests are said to house the bones of a succession of early kings of Wessex in England, plus a queen and two archbishops. Dr Kat Jarman has studied the remarkable story of these bone chests and their contents, and she spoke to David Musgrove to explain all. Hello, my name is Kat Jarman. I'm an archaeologist and bioarchaeologist, and my new book is called The Bone Chests. And this is a book about these extraordinary chests in Winchester Cathedral that contain the bodies of kings and queens and bishops dating from the 7th century to the 12th century, encompassing pretty much all of the creation of England. And I was drawn to this because I wanted to find out what those bones, those chests, those remains that have been kept for such a long time can tell us about the Anglo-Saxon early medieval period, but also the stories we've told about them and what we think we know. So that's what my book is about, is trying to untangle the bones and their stories inside the chests. And it is a great book. It's entitled The Bone Chests, Unlocking the Secrets of the Anglo-Saxons. So let's dip into it a bit more. So you've outlined what the bone chests are a little bit. Why are they in Winchester? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think a lot of people, when I tell them about this book, get quite surprised that Winchester was such an important town, but it was pretty much the capital of England, if we can call it that. It was not really a capital in the sense that we think of it now today, but really for, for hundreds of years, Winchester really was a key political centre in the entire country, starting with the Kingdom of Wessex or the West Saxons. So the bones that are in those chests now, some of them have been there right from the start, from the 7th century, from when Wessex and Winchester really started and kicked off, and right up until the Norman Conquest. So it really is extraordinary to have all these bones in that location. But what they really tell us, I think, is, is that significant that 
that town, that city, and that those churches there really had for the development of not just Wessex, but also England as it became that country. And the bones and later on the chests that they were kept in have actually been a really crucial and integral part to that entire story. And the, the chests themselves, you said that they contain the, the earliest bones they, they contain or are thought to contain date back to the 7th century. The chests themselves aren't that old, are they? Can you tell us a little bit about the, the physicality of the chests themselves? Yeah, so the chest that you can see now today. So if you do go into Winchester Cathedral, walk down the nave to the choir and then the presbytery in the middle. It's a beautiful building, Norman uh, Cathedral originally, that's later had lots of uh, amendments and developments to it. But if you look up at the presbytery, there's these huge stone screens and right up at the top, you can see these six chests. Now those chests uh, that you see today date from the 16th century, two of replacements. They've got this extraordinary history uh, of those chests in particular, but they are based on earlier versions. So we know there are medieval versions, there are some from the uh, 14th century. We know that in 1158, bones from burials and interments around the cathedral were first moved, or at least we think the first time, were moved into this cathedral and into uh, probably lead uh, chests. So this this sort of tradition of taking bones, taking these royal bones, especially important burials, putting them into chests and, and keeping them goes way back to much earlier periods. How surprising is it that the chests survive at all? With these ones, actually, yes, it is a little bit surprising. Uh, in general, things in cathedrals and, and places like this are quite well looked after. But these were actually subjected to an attack in the English Civil War. So in 1642, the parliamentarian troops entered uh, the town of, of Winchester in December and launched an attack on the cathedral and pretty much desecrated everything inside it that they could find, including clambering up on these stone screens and opening the chests and rifling through them. They were uh, pushed to the ground, so several of them were smashed. There were originally 10 chests, four of them were smashed at the time, and the parliamentarians actually took bones out of the chests and used them to fling them at the stained glass window in the cathedral. The huge stained glass windows all completely smashed up. So the fact that any of them remain after that attack uh, is quite extraordinary. During the Reformation as well, there were attacks on the cathedral and things like the bones of St. Swithin, so Winchester's most prominent uh, saint, were attacked. His shrine was attacked as well. So the fact that they've gone through all these really quite dramatic events is in itself quite unusual. And actually, the fact that we do have bones, probably, I mean, that's part of what I'm trying to uncover in this story, is whether they, they are the real bones or not. Uh, going back from the 7th century, I mean, we're talking so many centuries here, is quite extraordinary. But I think in a place like Winchester that has been venerated, you know, as a as a place, as a, as a church, several churches there uh, for such a long time, perhaps it isn't quite as a surprising that they were being protected in a place like that. What's the story of the religious buildings in and around the cathedral over the centuries? Yeah, so the religious buildings in Winchester is quite extraordinary, actually, uh, if you go back over the records of what's happened there. So what you see today is the cathedral that was built in the Norman period. So this dates from 1079, that was first built, and then later it was dedicated in 1093. So it's a proper sort of 11th century, the incoming new Norman elites trying to make a, a mark on the country by uh, essentially starting this brand new sort of almost huge big 
nationwide uh, scheme of, of building new cathedrals. But going back before that, we have the earliest church from about 650. So that's quite early on. That's when Christianity is really just starting to, to make a proper route uh, in England and in Wessex. So around about that time, the first church is built in Winchester. We've got some archaeological evidence for that. And that develops over time and turns into a monastery. And that's what later becomes known as Old Minster. And you'd think that one really quite big, beautiful stone church in a place like that would be enough. But that was not the case because in 901, Edward the Elder, who was uh, son of Alfred the Great, decided to build a brand new church and a brand new foundation, so a brand new monastery. And he actually got new land literally right next to Old Minster. So you have this really quite, you know, by this point, several hundred year old and very wealthy, very beautiful Minster church in Winchester. And then Edward builds a brand new one literally right next to him. And we're talking, you know, feet apart from the other one. Old Minster still remains, but he built a brand new one. And he does this in order to uh, essentially have a place for himself and his own family. So he actually moves the remains of his father and makes it a place for, for his descendants as well. So he makes a really, really important statement. So over time, both of these big Minster churches remain there. And it's it's staggering. The reconstructions that archaeologists have made, what they looked like, is quite extraordinary. It's a bit like if you imagine some towns in, in, in Italy or somewhere where you have all these church towers all sort of jumbled up next to each other. That's probably the, the sort of feeling that you'd get if you were walking around Winchester, which for England is, is quite unusual. So they were really, really important and they were being used by the royals because at this point, this really is very much the, the sort of capital, if we can call it that, of Wessex and then this emerging new England. And because Wessex really is the place where that happens, where that whole sort of comes from, really, this is being used very deliberately. The churches are being used very deliberately uh, to, to make a sort of statement about the status of, of the entire city, really. We used to run uh, BBC History magazine weekends in Winchester a, f a few years ago. And before it all kicked off, you know, the days uh, begun, I used to go and like stand in the cathedral square. And just at uh, one time, I tried to imagine those two minsters together because the, the old minster line is still marked out on the on the ground, isn't it? And I tried to imagine what it was like there. So you mentioned there that the, the new minster was designed by Edward the Elder the, of King Alfred. Was King Alfred's bones, were those ones that were thought to be included in the bone chess? Can you tell us whose remains are considered to be likely to be in the bone chess? Yes, that's a really interesting question. Well, well both are questions. So who is meant to be in there? Is, there's quite a lot of debate around that, really. The chests themselves that you see today actually have names listed on them. So the names listed on there is eight kings, two bishops and one queen. Now, if you go back over the records and the history of the chest, you can see that actually other names have been listed previously. There were originally 10 chests before the Civil War attack and possibly more before that as well. So there's a longer list of names uh, certainly in there. We also know that going back to the earliest records from actually from the 1150s and, and sort of medieval records of what happened to them, it's clear that when bones were moved into the initial chess in the first place, they didn't actually quite know 
whose bones were being moved, exactly who was where. So it's really quite confusing. I think those 11 names clearly are not the full story. And there's clearly people who are missing from all of this. And Alfred the Great is one of them. So Alfred is not listed uh, on the chest. There's no record of him actually ever having been in there. We know he was originally in Oldminster. He was then moved to Newminster. But when that was demolished, the bones were apparently moved to Hyde Abbey, which was a a new monastery in Winchester. And uh, at some point when that was dismantled, they disappeared. And we don't know where they are. Now, the names that are actually on there are, they're a little bit odd. Um, Some of them make a lot of sense and others don't. So it's clear that it's not a sort of deliberate, you know, I don't think anybody ever sat down and thought, right, who's going to go in here? (laughs) Who's going to go in these chests? But it seems to be a lot more about coincidence. But they start with one of those earliest kings. So Kinegils, for example, who uh, is uh, one of those earliest kings who died in 643. So he was that king who first converted Wessex to Christianity. Other better known ones include Egbert and Ethelwolf, so the father and grandfather of Alfred, actually. And then going along to people like King Knut. And this is one of the, the parts of the story I think is most fascinating, the fact that we have Knut the Great, who was a Scandinavian, a Viking king, who uh, ruled England as part of an empire of you know England, Norway, Denmark, possibly also parts of Sweden, along with the only woman who's allegedly in there, and that is his wife, Emma. So we have this remarkable collection of people uh, leading up to the most recent of the ones in there who is named uh, on the chest, which is William Rufus, who was son of William the Conqueror, who died in 1100. So those are the sort of most likely known names. Clearly, it doesn't tell the full story. So you have to try and understand both, you know, who these people are, what their relationship were to Winchester and to, to you know, the, the wider story, as well as what happened to the chests uh, over time. So this is really interesting, isn't it? They've, they've got these famous important figures, these royal figures, but the bones are jumbled up in these boxes and they and they seem to be somewhat ambivalent about who goes into, into which boxes. So the bones of the royal family were presumably venerated during the Anglo-Saxon period in some way and would have been regularly moved around these religious institutions by the sound of things. What do we take from the placement of these bones in these boxes in in what appears to be something of a random fashion? I think this idea that they are moving the bones around, bones of the royals especially, is quite an important one to understand, first of all. I think that happened an awful lot more than we might have realised in our current period. You know, we bury someone and they they stay put. You know, we try to think that that is their permanent resting place. We don't want to move them. That certainly was not the case in the early medieval period. And the bones themselves, the burials were really, really significant. Uh, so you're not really necessarily putting people in the ground or in a burial place to sort of leave them in peace forever. But these bones are active. They're being used. They're being used for political reasons more than anything. This kind of linked also to things like saints and saints relics, uh, which again are being moved around an awful lot. People come to visit them. Where those saints relics are being kept is really, really important. And the royal bones are very much being used in the same way. And I think something like, if you take that example I gave earlier of Edward the Elder, who built this entire new church, he deliberately took Alfred's bones from Oldminster and put them into his new church. And obviously there's no 
practical reason, Old Minster was still functioning, it was still there, people could use it, it was right next door. So this was a very much a political statement. This was him creating something new that was linked to his new sort of dynasty, essentially. And that was going to be for his ancestor and for his descendant. And at that point in time, what was also happening in, in Wessex and in the country was that this was becoming England now. So he was essentially moving from just his ancestors who'd been the, the rulers of a kingdom of, of the West Saxons into those who were essentially the rulers of England. And that physical body of uh, his father was part of that story. So this is happening quite a lot. You see other people moving them sometimes in a negative way. So you've got all the stories later on about Harold Harefoot, for example, who had been buried in Westminster. But Harthacnut, uh, who was his half-brother, allegedly exhumed his body and threw it into a, a marsh because again we've got this competition for power and that body that physical body wasn't something you could just leave and forget about it had to be moved so these are essentially demonstrations of power and you're using that connection to the past that very physical very real you know the actual bodily remains of that individual in order to to make a political statement so half of Canute and Harefoot, Harold Harefoot, you just mentioned they were sons of, of King Canute, weren't they? Yes, that's right. Yes. So we've got this really quite complex uh, succession going on there relating to, to Canute and also to Emma, his wife. Emma was married to Canute, but she was previously married to Ethelred. So she had uh, other children as well. Canute had other children from his first marriage. So this becomes this exceptionally complex story, but how those relate to each other and how they then relate later on to William the Conqueror, who is, uh, Emma was actually his great aunt. So again, you know, you have these burials, these bones being used by descendants and by families to make very, very clear statements. We'll come back to Emma in just a second. I'm really interested in this idea of the, of the political statement of the bones, because you say it does, it does link into saints and relics as well, doesn't it? And I'm uh, just thinking about it now. It's a little bit like some of these Neolithic tomes where, where you have jumbles of bones put into the, sort of the alcoves that they have in these long barrows, isn't it? Absolutely. I think that the way we think of especially death and, and burial and dead bodies, you know, what happens in a grave. I think that's actually quite different to how people have thought about these bodies in the past, because I think in the past, the dead were very much more part of the world of the living, actually, than, than we tend to think of them. And you see even, you know, so my, my other sort of main specialist in really is the Viking Age and looking at Viking Age graves, and you have these burial mounds that are being very actively used in Scandinavia. They're, they're there, but they're very visible. They're in the landscape. They're making marks. People are breaking into them. They're taking things out of them. They have stories about what has, happens within the graves. And I think we need to think of it in that way very much, that those dead, those physical remains of the dead, they're still playing a really active part. And I absolutely, I mean, those Neolithic tombs, it's just such a great comparison, actually. People are moving and curating bones. They are, they are using them. They're not just a sort of a dead person who's then laid to rest and, you know, you, you forget about them. Well, not forget about them, but forget about the physicality of them. That actual, those physical remains are, are very much part of that world. No, it's interesting. Yeah, so a very different way of thinking about the dead to what we do today by the sound of things. You've slightly answered this question already, but you said the bones were used as a political statement. How do the bone chests and, and their occupants help us to understand the, sort of the story of Wessex and its development into, into England? I think there's sort of two parts of that, really. And one of them is what happens at that time period itself. So 
this whole development, these movements of the churches, so Oldminster, Newminster, these these ways that the kings are using them, using those remains, moving someone like Alfred. I mean, Alfred obviously had a really huge impact on the development of the entire country and his battles against the Vikings, especially in the Scandinavian attacks that are happening in his, his time. That's a huge part of it. And the fact that his descendants are essentially venerating his remains and using them and and sort of establishing this new church is a really key part, absolutely. And I also think we need to think a little bit about what happens later in our understanding of all of this. I mean, I'm I'm an archaeologist as opposed to a historian, so I prefer looking at the, the physical remains as opposed to the textual records. But if you look at a lot of the records that explain how this all happens, how we get what we think of as England and, you know, that point that that emerges when these early kingdoms uh, combine and we start talking more about a bigger country as opposed to just individual kingdoms. That is a story that's told quite a lot later and actually some of these points in time when these bones are being kept. uh, So the fact that when the new cathedral, the Norman cathedral is built, the bones are moved from the other churches into it. The fact that 1152, so this sort of really quite still an early stage of the new Norman England is being established. These bones are kept, they're being put into new chests by people who are related, who are linked. So for example, in, in 1158, when Henry of Blois uh, first allegedly moves bones into chests, now he was actually the grandson of William the Conqueror. And uh, he was also at the time of the King Henry II was his first cousin once removed. So he himself being the Bishop of Winchester has the this family link and William the Conqueror very much used his link to Emma, so Emma of Normandy, so she has these Norman origins, but she was this venerated queen back in the 11th century who was very much linked to a very strong period in Winchester uh, as history. So you have people later on taking those connections and actually really using them and putting them up there saying, you know, these are our venerated early Saxon kings and queens and bishops. So they are essentially perpetuating their whole story. And that, again, is something that we do now. So we've got this focus on how Alfred the Great was really the, the sort of creator of, of, of England or the sort of origin of, of a lot of the England that we know. So I think those stories have sort of been told again and again and they've been perpetuated through things like these remains, through the bone chests, in order to essentially place us where we are today in our understanding of that past. Brilliant. I said we'd come back to Emma. Tell us a little bit more. Tell us who Queen Emma was and why she is an important and interesting figure in this story. Yeah, so Emma is really quite incredible. In this story especially, she's interesting because she is, as I've mentioned uh, previously, she's still a wife of of Knut, so she essentially co-ruled with Knut. But before that, she first comes to England, so she was the the daughter of the Norman Duke, but she comes to England in, uh, I believe, 2002 as an 18-year-old to marry Ethelred, later known as Ethelred the Unready, who was king of England at the time. And they have a number of children. But when Ethelred dies and Knut becomes king of the country, he takes her as uh, his wife. And they, again, also have children. And later on, after Knut's death, it's very much her children that then battle for rule of of England. Uh, It's quite a, a complex succession dispute. And what is really interesting about her is that she, not only is she 
venerated at her own time as a queen, which was actually really, really unusual. We don't have in this early medieval period that the queens tend to not have quite as much political power or certainly not that is preserved in the records later on. But she is clearly co-ruling. She has a very active part to play when she is the queen mother as well. She's very active politically. She's clearly very well respected and very well thought of. And throughout her entire time as first the wife of Ethered and then Knut has so much to do with what is happening in the entire country. So that that is part of it, I think. The fact that she was such a, a sort of well, I think she was a very well-respected queen. She was a very active queen at a point where that wasn't common, that wasn't that usual. But she was also clearly somebody who could connect different spheres in England. So she had been Ethelred's wife, so she's got this sort of English connection. She'd already been there for quite a long time. She's actually got Scandinavian ancestors as well, because of course the Normans were Scandinavians. And then later on, she would also have this importance for William when he comes in after the, the Norman conquest. So all of this together just makes a really, really complex character. But I think the fact that she is given so much prominence, the fact that she is clearly very well respected in her own time and later on is something that's really quite unique. Yeah. I wrote a book about the Biotapestry a, a few years back, co-wrote a book, and, and she is integral to the story of the Norman Conquest. Not surprising, I guess, perhaps, that she's uh, her remains are in the bone chest. But I wonder, there were some questions over her life as well, weren't there? One of the other figures in the bone chest, or perhaps in the bone chest, is this figure, Bishop Elfween. There were question marks over whether they had some sort of relationship. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Actually, a, bit, a little bit of a theme in the, in the book. I'll bring out a few examples of this. Some of these queens, these powerful women, there's quite a lot of stories about them, especially some of the later stories, to try and essentially slander their, their reputation. And a lot is very often to do with their relationships and you know their, their virtue as, as women and as rulers especially. And Emma was no different. And she was, in fact, accused of having an affair with the Bishop of Winchester at the time, so Elfwina or Elfwina. And it's written down in various records, uh, actually only from the 12th century onwards. And uh, it's a story that takes place some years after Knut's death. And Emma had returned to England with uh, her son, Harthur Knut. And apparently, she was then accused of having this romantic affair with a bishop, which was obviously not something that was condoned by anyone, but especially not the church. So in order to prove their innocence, Edward, who was actually her son and the king at the time, let her go through an ordeal. So she had to walk across plowshares laid out in the nave of Minster, and if she could do this and, and come out of it unscathed, it proved that she was innocent. And according to the story, they were all laid out red hot. She walked across them and she was absolutely fine, proving that she had, in fact, not had this affair after all. And what is quite ironic is the fact that this bishop was also in this named on the chest. So at the moment, they are allegedly resting in the same chest together, which I, I think is quite a quite a fun little fact. Yeah, it's an interesting story and a, a difficult story to untangle. And particularly when you think about the biotapestry, there's this enigmatic elf giver bit in, in the story and, and there's some suggestion that that might be some reflection of that story. I, I'm not sure. It seems a bit of a stretch to me. But anyway, let's let's move on. We, we kind of we talked about the people whose remains might be in these boxes and, and kind of I've always couched it in the terms of might because, as you said, they've, they're jumbled up and we don't really know for sure. But there has been some recent research on them, hasn't there? And, and, and ongoing, I think. Are we going to ever know whether the, the bones are who they're said to be? 
I don't think we'll ever know for sure. I think there will always be an element of guesswork, but it's quite exciting to see how much the technology is moving along and very, very quickly. So what we can now do. Now, I think one problem with this and one problem in trying to identify remains, identify bones, is partially the whole Richard III story and the whole king in the car park and, and all of that. And I think, unfortunately, that has given people a, a, this sense that we can do everything. You know, we can identify someone, match relatives and, and conclusively prove who they were. Unfortunately, most of the time, that is not the case. So in order to really prove it, you need to have definite descendants. You need to be able to extract DNA, at least at the moment, that's all we can do. And you need to have someone that you can compare it to. And in most of these examples, we don't have that. So we don't have any known descendants of a king who died in 643. Uh, it's just not possible. And in fact, if he had descendants, they're now going to be in the tens and tens and tens of thousands. So it's, it's kind of meaningless because you have so many relatives. So that is a key problem. But there are some other things we can do, which I, I hope will happen in the future. So this research project that you're talking about uh, is not one that I've personally been part of at all. It's one that is ongoing, uh, started in 2012. And the preliminary research results from that came out in 2019 and had some really, really interesting results. They don't yet have, or they haven't released uh, full DNA results from that. I think the most, as I said, as we can't have descendants, we don't have definite people that we know that we can connect together here. But now, in very recent years, actually, we've made so many developments in terms of family connections and being able to actually establish family relationships between different individuals. So we can now pinpoint first-degree relatives. We can find fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and sisters. And, you know, there's some incredible results in this period, uh, especially with the Viking Age, where we found people related, you know, one buried in Denmark and one buried in Oxford who are close relatives. I think that's probably, to me, what we might be able to do in the future is we might be able to see some of these individuals because, you know, there's a lot of these are people are related. So, for example, we've got Egbert and Ethelwolf, father and son, who are both meant to be in there. So if we can find that, if we can get the dates right, if we can get that family connection, that would be a really exciting result, I think. You know, we've talked a little bit about how those bones were, were viewed quite differently in the past as to how we might view the bones of the dead today. Do you think it's reasonable and okay to be studying bones and sort of taking them out of these boxes? What's what's your view on the ethics of the, of the situation? Now, obviously, you always think about the fact that you have to respect the bones that you work on and you should never do any of this unless you have a really good reason to do it. If you've got a good research question, you don't do it just to get some interesting data. It might be fun. Uh, you know, it's got to be a question that this can answer, that it can contribute to. And there's an awful lot of things that, that that can do, I think. I do think that we need to be a little bit careful. We don't want to do things before it's responsible. So, you know, we don't want to go out and just sample everything when the technology isn't there. There's some bodies like this, for example, where I know that people are waiting, you know, they're, they're keeping them until the technology catches up so that you can take them. We can now use much, much much smaller samples. It's much, much less invasive than it used to be. We can be very confident that we can take a sample and actually get something from it. And we can use that data later on and refine it. So you take a sample. So, so in terms of the actual physical impact, I think that is really important. But I think there's also something to be said, not just about the kind of general development of the methods and understanding of these people in this period, but actually in terms of 
those stories that we have told, those narratives that we're still telling uh, about these people and about these bones. And I'm sure a lot of listeners to this podcast will be quite well familiar with this, the debates around the, the Anglo-Saxon, the term Anglo-Saxon, and the sort of what that means, who those people were. We've seen some really incredible research recently of this early Anglo-Saxon period and seeing DNA evidence of where people have come from. Some quite surprising uh, evidence. We've got greys with income as migrants from parts of the world that we really were not expecting at all. We can start to understand these interactions. And for a very long time, it's been some very specific narratives about that earliest part of the period especially. So I'm talking about the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Bede and Gildas and all of these Anglo-Saxon migrations and how that happened. And that is a part of this history that is being used and abused actually uh, quite a lot at the time. So I think looking at the bones, getting this evidence out of them, we can start to challenge some of those questions, start to really understand it away from those written sources. Um, we can start looking at things like women. We talked a bit about Emma and the fact that, you know, there is allegedly one woman in there. And I do talk about this a bit more in my book. You've talked about this research project that's going on. And they did actually discover that one of the, the bodies in there was a female body. And uh, the assumption is that that is Emma. Now, there's plenty of others as well. There may well be more women in the written records. They are pretty much written out. If you take the example of Alfred, for example, in his biography by Asa, his wife is not mentioned by Nessa Ailsworth. It's not mentioned by name at all in the entire book. Now, of course, his biographer knew the name of Alfred's wife. She's mentioned as his wife, but her name is not even in there. So there are things that have happened since, things that the ways that all of this history has been presented in terms of gender, in terms of migration. And sometimes the stories that we now tell about this history can be really damaged, can be really wrong. I do think that looking at the bones, looking at the evidence can start to really question some of those some of those assumptions that we have and for that reason I, I i think it's okay i think as long as we do it respectfully and do it for really good reason do it really carefully and obviously as we were just saying people have used these bones in their own ways for a very long time and perhaps that's that's also what we're doing but as long as we're trying to get something positive out of it and we're very conscious of that then yeah my sort of overall conclusion is that it is okay <laughs> Okay, brilliant. Right, to, to wrap up, just one more thing. You mentioned in sort of the intro of your book, when you went to visit Winchester to sort of first look at the mortuary chest, you were struck by how many people wandering around the around the church didn't seem to be taking notice of them. Let's assume that some of our listeners are going to be encouraged to go to Winchester Cathedral and have a wander around and maybe have a glance up at the mortuary chest themselves. What would you advise them to do if they did go into the cathedral? Yeah, I absolutely recommend everyone listening to this to go to Winchester, go and see them for yourself, just taking the whole thing, taking the whole cathedral. Now, what is really interesting, that we were talking earlier about these early churches and you saying how you were trying to imagine what it was like when you had Old Minster and Newminster there at the same time. You know, the view that you get of that church now is not obviously the 9th century, it's not the 10th century, it's not even the Norman church, it's all quite different. But if you go in there, just go and try and take it in, take in the space, take in that sort of big nave, walk down it, look at it, look at all the different people, all the graves, 
because it's littered essentially with grave. You, you walk over Jane Austen's grave there in, in set in the floor as you walk down and you walk down it and you come to one of the, the little transepts on the side. There's a staircase and you can start to look up and have a little glimpse and first see these chests. They're sort of almost hidden up on that really tall ledge on the choir. So just sort of go there, take some time, look at them and look at the inscriptions, look around you, look at all these other people. There's Describe them all in the book all these other inscriptions uh, around there of other people that are allegedly buried in different places as well that link to the story. But I think think of that and turn around, look at the big stained glass window and the west front when you come in. That is the one that was reconstructed after the parliamentarians in the Civil War smashed it. So actually now it's a mosaic. It's um, a mosaic that is built up of those remains of the earlier stained glass window that was smashed in the Civil War. So all the way around you are these little signs of how people have essentially interacted with this past, interacted with the ancestor, those rulers, how that's presented. And I think just try to get a sense of that. Try and sort of imagine all those stories, all those different people over time who have interacted with the chests, with the bones. And, you know, somewhere in all of that is a little sort of kernel of the actual truth of the of the original history. And I think you do have to go there and see it to to get the real sense of that. That was Kat Jarman. Her book, The Bone Chests, Unlocking the Secrets of the Anglo-Saxons, is out now, published by HarperCollins. Kat also wrote a feature on The Bone Chests for the November issue of BBC History magazine. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. <laughs>